Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast. Bombs over Belgrade, part two. At the end of the last episode, we left FR Yugoslavia on the brink of a flashpoint in Kosovo, and on the brink of their first post, well, everything, World Cup. The first two months of 1998 saw the UCK, the Gospel Liberation Army, increase their activity with over 50 separate attacks on various bits of police and state infrastructure. This would be one of three things that would tip Slobodan Milosevic over the edge from putting up with the UCK to actively going for their destruction. The second thing relates to something we mentioned quite a bit around Franjo Tudjman in the Croatian independence episodes a few episodes back. Specifically that Milosevic was given indications that he had enough credit in the bank with the West to get away with doing something. He got that hint from the USA and specifically Balkan envoy Robert Gelbard who stated in February 98 that the UCK were quote without question a terrorist group, and that their activities in Kosovo were strongly condemned. The third thing would be that the Serb police were closing the net on Adam Yashari. On the 28th of February 98, Yashari was pinned down as part of a police operation in Likasani after a UCK group was stumbled upon by a police patrol. Two policemen and five UCK fighters died, but Yashari escaped for now. However, the fighting saw the local area erupt with the village of Shirez seeing 26 Kosovan Albanians killed by police in an eerie reminder of the tactics of the armies in Bosnia. With Yashari close, an operation was ordered to go in and take him out once and for all in what would become known as the attack on Prakats, the fight that began the Kosovan War. Serbian police were closing in when ambushed in Donji Prakats, but were able to fend off the UCK attack. UCK fighters fell back to the compound where Adam Yashari and his family lived while the police, enraged by the attacks they'd been under, encircled it. They gave the occupants of the house two hours to leave, which many did. When that time limit expired, a further ultimatum to surrender was given, which was responded to not with words, but gunfire. Immediately, the situation went to hell, with the police opening fire and turning what was originally meant to be apprehension and arrest into extermination. Over the following 24 hours, the surrounded compound was under siege. Come the end, the only one person in the compound was left alive, one of Adam Yashari's nieces. 28 UCK fighters were killed, along with around 30 other family members who had remained in the compound. FR Yugoslavia would claim that those civilians had been kept in the compound as human shields, something that is of course impossible to verify. But whatever the truth of the civilian deaths, the reality soon became clear that the attack on Pakats was a big misjudgment. Yashari was a martyr to many and the UCK's recruitment went even further upwards with all diplomatic efforts, such as those through Ibrahim Rugova, sidelined completely. And it turned out that Yugoslavia didn't have the political capital in the bank to get through an attack that was 
hardly without justification, but was executed in the most brutal manner possible. International condemnation was swift, but limited to words at this point, as the situation on the ground became more confused and tragic with each day. The initial aims of the war itself were pretty simple to understand, quite aside from the overarching aims of who owns Kosovo. Initially, the UCK wanted to set up a corridor of territory that they would control straight from Dranica to the Albanian border to facilitate the easy movement of arms, and also to provide an easily defendable base for fighters out of the mountainous terrain of the border between Kosovo and Albania. As for Milosevic and FR Yugoslavia, the aim was simply to eradicate the UCK while also not provoking external intervention. That latter balance was something that was near impossible to do. The hit and run tactics of the UCK didn't change much with the evolution of the conflict from insurgency to war. When in May, the Yugoslav army joined the police to help clear a stronghold in Dakan, NATO's response was to carry out military drills in the region to warn Milosevic off and its escalation of the conflict. To be fair, Milosevic listened, trying to use Boris Yeltsin to help broker a ceasefire. Meanwhile, while Yugoslavia took all the scorn, the UCK got all the encouragement when, UC, sorry, when US envoy Richard Holbrook, one of America's most senior diplomats, went to Kosovo to take photo opportunities with the UCK, which, unsurprisingly, the UCK took as clear US support for an organisation that only a few months earlier had been strongly condemned as a terrorist organisation by the US. Furthermore, when international monitors would go into Kosovo on the back of Milosevic meeting Yeltsin, their call for a ceasefire would be condemned by the US, who felt that the ceasefire should be one-sided and allow the UCK to carry on their activities, such as hitting the power supply by taking the Belacevac mine, abducting Serb miners, whose fate has never been revealed, and putting a situation in play where Serb forces had to move in to recapture it. They would go one step bolder in trying to take the major town of Rahovac, which they held for a short time before a Yugoslav counterattack forced them back out. It's fair to note at this point that the war was very much tit for tat. The UCK would attack, the Yugoslav forces would counter. The UCK would abduct and massacre civilians such as 22 at Kletcha and 36 at Lake Radonjic. Yugoslavs would do the same and it would change the war at Gonje Abrinje. Fighting had been going on on the land of the Deliai family between police and the UCK, but ended up with around 15 policemen killed. In retribution, the police rounded up the family into the woods and murdered them. 21 people were killed, with five children among them, and the oldest member of the family, a disabled 94-year-old man, burning to death in the family home when he couldn't move out to be executed with the rest of his family. The outcome of this outrage would quickly be the formation of the KVM through NATO, the first involvement of NATO and, in this instance, a watching force to make sure that a ceasefire and that Yugoslav withdrawal was kept to. As long-time listeners will know, the point of any ceasefire ever put in place in Yugoslavia is simply that it's there to be broken, and neither the UCK nor 
FR Yugoslavia kept to it all that much, with the ceasefire fully breaking down in December 98 and major fights taking place on the Albanian border, where a Yugoslav force ambushed UCK forces smuggling arms across the border, killing 36. That would be immediately followed by a supposed UCK revenge attack on Serb civilians in the Panda Cafe in Petch, which killed six people between 14 and 25, injuring 15 others. Now, accusations will go around about this one, but in 2022, it seems likely that this particular attack was actually a false flag by Serb intelligence agents, and the Serbian government have withdrawn claims that it was perpetrated by the UCK. Whatever the exact truth of the matter, it was immediately followed by a door-to-door crackdown in Petch, which turned up a significant amount of UCK arms which were hidden in the town. Another breaking point would be reached in January at Rechat. The UCK were active around the village and had some sort of presence in Rechak itself. At the start of January 1999, the UCK attacked local police posts, killing four. So Yugoslav forces moved in to encircle the area. From there, it's unclear exactly what happened. And you, yes, I appreciate, you will probably have noticed with almost this entire war and the major incidents within it, the words, it's unclear exactly how things went down, are pretty much a permanent accompaniment. A Yugoslav Belarusian investigation would come out and say that everyone killed was fighting for the UCK. An EU investigation would show that those killed in Jack were unlikely to have been K- uh, unlikely to have been UCK fighters. The reality is probably somewhere in between. The UCK were undoubtedly in Rishak, and forces did try to break out upon shelling of the village starting, so there was definitely some fighting. But it also seems highly likely that several of the people killed were just innocent civilians, and that many of the dead were not killed in fighting. They were summarily executed. Whatever the truth of the matter, because one, we will never know, and two, these things tended to happen because a major tactic of the UCK was to stage these hit and run attacks and make sure they did their running through population centers such as these small villages so as to try and prevent any retaliation because of the risk of collateral damage. But 45 people were killed in Rechak. This was the final straw for NATO. Two weeks later, they issued a statement authorising airstrikes on Yugoslav territory to compel a political settlement upon FR Yugoslavia and the UCK. Peace talks began at Rambouillet at the same time, with the base position that Kosovo would be more or less returned to their pre-anti-bureaucratic revolution position of autonomy with a bit more on top. Between FR Yugoslavia and NATO, they got some of the way there. But much of the ways of keeping the peace, namely a proposed NATO peacekeeping force, were too much for Milosevic to accept, who wanted unarmed UN observers and also, when push came to shove, didn't think NATO were going to bomb bomb him. 
his wishes, of course, neatly ignored the fact that unarmed observers had just tried to keep a ceasefire in Kosovo and failed miserably at it. In short, the talks came up with two separate strands. Political autonomy for Kosovo, that the Serbs were absolutely fine with, but some other parties to it needed some cajoling to agree to, such as the Albanians, and peacekeeping forces along with troop limits for FR Yugoslavia and Kosovo, which Serbs were absolutely not fine with. So NATO made good on their threat to compel peace upon FR Yugoslavia by airstrikes. With that, Milosevic took the leech off his troops in Kosovo also, and the body count swiftly went up. Over the following 10 weeks, NATO flew over 38,000 combat missions as NATO experienced several unexpected issues. Weather meant early missions were often completely useless. Milosevic was expected to just fold in a few days and didn't. And, most damagingly, the technology used far from lived up to its billing of preventing civilian casualties. Most notoriously among these were accidental bombings of a refugee train in Jakova that killed 73, which was mistaken for Yugoslav military, a bridge bombing in Lutsane that hit a bus travelling over the bridge, killing 46, and a bombing of a refugee train near Carissa that killed 87. Most covered of all were, of course, the various bombings in Belgrade, such as a strike that killed 16 at the Radio Television Serbia headquarters, and when three Chinese journalists were killed after NATO accidentally, brackets, accidentally on purpose, <laughs> bombed the Chinese episode at embassy in Belgrade that was, depending on your worldview, either an accidental hit after pilots were given incorrect coordinates or a purposeful attack on an embassy given that it was believed to be transmitting communications to the army. Either way, that particular incident probably still has geopolitical ramifications today. The NATO bombings were broadly pretty ineffectively, um, and the war came to a close less because of the aerial tactics doing what they were intended to, but because it became clear that Russia were not going to intervene on Yugoslavia's side. It is also important to state that Yugoslavia did go all in on the war crimes during the NATO bombings. The day after bombing started, 90 were murdered in Krusha. Similar numbers were killed in Izbica a couple of days later and Pustoselo. Almost 400 were killed at Mea in a revenge attack as a refugee column was cleared of men with a fighting age, with 120 killed in a similar incident in Vukdin. One of the last was the Dubrava prison killings, where a NATO bombing misrecognised the prison as a barracks, killing around 20, and then, the following day, Yugoslav police rounded up prisoners and shot at them for sport, killing around 80. The result of all of this was that Milosevic had to accept those terms he'd turned down before the bombings, NATO peacekeepers. Milosevic would, a few days before the bombing ended, be indicted for war crimes. The UCK, as part of the peace treaty, would disband. FR Yugoslavia 
and Slobodan Milosevic had been in an impossible position because of the prior decade of policy towards Kosovo. The repression of Kosovan Albanians that was long-standing policy was unjustifiable and, especially in the febrile conditions of the early to mid-90s in the region, made the emergence of something like the UCK all but inevitable. Worse still, had Milosevic not chosen the path of repression in Kosovo, it wouldn't necessarily have meant Kosovo would have gone down the path of overt nationalism, because Albania was an absolute mess, and unification with them, or the separate removal of Kosovo from Yugoslavia's borders, was, at best, impractical. However, with Milosevic having chosen the path of repression, it's also very fair to say that the UCK left little choice for Milosevic but to go into a war that, bluntly, the UCK provoked. If one were to compare the situation, the UCK, to other European nations' movements such as the IRA or ETA, the UCK posed a far more existential threat to FR Yugoslavia. Yet where Britain and Spain were permitted to deal with their threats, FR Yugoslavia were pressured from outside to accommodate and give in to them from very early on. The concept that somehow FR Yugoslavia would not be permitted to deal with the UCK through force, yet that the USA should level Afghanistan or Iraq for similar, if arguably far less pressing, threats, is a conundrum that is pretty hard for many to fathom and has caused an understandable amount of anti-Western sentiment that lingers to this day. The expectation of NATO related to how Yugoslavia prosecute the conflict was, quite simply, that they didn't, and just let the UCK have what they wanted. That is the legacy of a decade of Milosevic being genuinely awful to Kosovo. The conduct of wars in the Kraina and Bosnia and also because Albania was of key interest to US policymakers as their base in Southeast Europe through which to monitor FR Yugoslavia. The conduct and misconduct of the UCK and FR Yugoslavia prior to NATO intervention was broadly equal, and it was only after NATO played the trump card of bombings that the misconduct of Yugoslav forces ramped up, suggesting that the extent of the killing in Kosovo might have been lower with different actions from NATO. Quite simply, the entire situation was a mess. And it remains an understandably controversial topic with both Serb and Kosovan Albanian communities. And I am sure that the opinions of <laughs> things provided in this episode and the last episode will undoubtedly be controversial to some. That's just the nature of it, and that's just kind of the risk you take when you're covering this particular topic. But that is where that particular story ends for this episode. But not the end of the story as a whole. And we'll pick back up next episode with a bit of a what happened next for Milosevic and for those suddenly idle fighters of the UCK. But for the remainder of this episode, will visit Yugoslavia's national side during France 98. Come France 98, Yugoslavia travelled with a slightly less balanced squad than, as our most reviewed ex recently reviewed example, Croatia. P 
Pixie as captain was 33 with Savic Vajic at 31. Also, as the two creative drivers of their team just passed their peak as opposed to being at it. Further complicating things was that Yugoslavia had slightly less depth at the back compared to Croatia. But they also had a very decent group, drawn against the fading Germans, the mainly domestic-based Iran, and the mainly domestic-based USA. That said, the USA had their own Serb, and I'm fairly sure I wouldn't be permitted to do this particular um, topic without mentioning the former Zvezda youth player Predrag Preki Radosavljevic who have moved over to play indoor football much like the legends of the late 70s and 80s such as Steve Zungul and Stan Stamenkovic, another former Zvezda player. Preki had US citizenship granted in 96 debuting for the national side aged 33 against Guatemala later that year. Most famously, he scored a winner for the US over a fairly strong Brazil side at the Gold Cup in early 1998. Preki stands alone as one of the most legendary figures in the early period of MLS history, twice being named League MVP and Golden Boot, including in 2003 when he was 40. Opening the group stage with a game against Iran, where Yugoslavia were, if not dominant, at least comfortable. With Iran threatening mainly on the counter and from distance before a 73rd minute free kick from Sinisa Mihailovic decided things, with the keeper taking a step to his left and then finding himself well beaten to his right as Mihailovic drilled it low around the wall. Germany in their second game would pose a sterner test, but one Yugoslavia would rise to, taking the lead as Kupka was bewitched by a Mijatovic cross. Dejan Stankovic went to get a flick on it, missed. The ball clipped Kupka's knee, clipped the post, then clipped the retreating Jens Jeremies to put it over the line. Albeit, I should add, FIFA recognised this goal as Mijatovic's, in spite of the fact that anyone looking at the footage would know it's clearly an own goal. As the first half wore on, it was clear Yugoslavia were the side in the ascendancy, but it took until the second half to make that dominance actually show. A Darko Kovacevic cross squirmed under Kopka, who didn't cover himself in glory again, to the waiting feet of Pixie, who had a simple tap-in from about one yard. But then the Germans did what the Germans do. A Tarnat free kick would be hammered, and Sinista Mihailovic would get his knee in the way, defecting it straight past Ivica Kral, and bringing the Germans back into the game on 72 minutes. Six minutes later, they'd be level, with Bierhoff heading home from a corner after a period of sustained German pressure. It left Yugoslavia with a must-win game against the already eliminated USA, who had been defeated in what had been a politically sensitive game, it's fair to say, against Iran. The game against the US would be decided early, after a Mihailovic free kick was parried by Casey Keller straight onto the head of Slobodan Komljenovic on four minutes, and that was that. With Germany winning the group on goal difference, having beaten Iran and the USA both 2-0 rather than 1-0, Yugoslavia went on to face the Dutch in the second round. Given what was covered two episodes ago, the final result of this particular game won't be unexpected to you especially given that the Dutch went on to play the tournament's most remembered game straight after this. 
Much like that game, the Dutch would score through Dennis Bergkamp, this time the opener rather than the finisher, on 38 minutes as he bundled Soren Mikovic to one side, then slid it under Kral, who should have done better. The equaliser would come from the same source as against the USA. A Mihailovic free kick ending up on the head of Komljenovic to beat Edwin van der Sar low at his near post. Three minutes later, Yugoslavia had the chance to go in front after Yapstam decided to yank Jugovic's shirt in the box, conceding a penalty. Predrag Mijatovic stepped up and hammered it against the underside of the bar and back out. With the perfect chance spurned, the counterpunch was inevitable. The remainder of the game was more or less one-way traffic as the Dutch created chance after chance with one goal disallowed for a Bergkamp foul. Much like in the following round, Dutch victory came at the death as an Edgar Davids daisy cutter threaded its way between defence, goalkeeper and post in second half injury time to send Yugoslavia home. Come Euro 2000, which we'll get to in a few episodes time, Yugoslavia would not be a much changed side, but would face the same issue Croatia had, that the generation of Pixie, of Savicevic and others was leaving the scene, or at least was overdue leaving the scene. That, as I say, we will cover in a couple of episodes time, as that particular tournament prior and during becomes a grand generational clash. But next time on the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, we complete our focus for now on happenings in the FR Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, as the actors of the Yugoslav Wars begin to leave the stage once and for all. Arkan wouldn't leave without having bulldozed through football, and Milosevic would leave after being bulldozed through himself. As always, sharing is caring. Uh, if you do know anyone who you think would enjoy listening to this, please do let them know. Please do share it on uh, your social media thing of choice, um, whether or not it's owned by Elon Musk. Who knows? Um, also, I hope... Um, Although we're not quite at the end of this arc, this is probably the one where much of the controversial stuff is in compared to the next episode. So um, I do hope that's provided what I try to do each time, which is a reasonably neutral coverage of events. Um, it is The Custom War is a conflict which is hotly disputed to this day um, and is something which to this day creates a lot of ill feeling in Serbia and that's understandable um, given how certain things proceeded during that particular conflict um, you know uh, it's not really a war that was avoidable I'm currently reading um, a book called Modern Albania um, which obviously is, co is covering Albania and was looking at the Rambouillet from the side of the Albanian delegation that was there who didn't cover themselves in glory um, and one quote that is, is, is there from one of the officials within the State Department was that they saw Croatia as the quarterfinal, Bosnia as the semi-final and Kosovo as the final um, and it was seen as a war that was inevitable uh, a long way out by a lot of people who I think in hindsight whose interests would probably have been best served in trying to find a resolution that didn't involve 
a lot of people dying needlessly. Um, but ultimately, it is some sort of accommodation needed to be made because the situation of repression within Kosovo was clearly absolutely untenable. Um, and yeah, as you can perhaps tell, these bits after uh, where I'm just talking, <laughs> um, uh, where I'm talking as myself rather than uh, on the script. Um, obviously, I have the full episodes completely scripted out, but then uh, we'll just go ad lib afterwards um, and <laughs> probably in this sort of topic, talk some, say something that gets me into trouble. Oh well. Um, yes, uh, if you would like to leave a review on that note, uh, <laughs> then please do on your chosen podcast service if it permits it it all helps um increase exposure and stuff um but yes thank you very much for listening and i will catch you next time